Welcome back to the Jordan Syatt Mini Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Aaron Horshig. He is Squat University on basically every platform, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, all of it. He has incredible content, and he's truly an unbelievably smart man, incredible coach, and we talk about a lot in this episode. One of the major things we talk about is back pain. It's something that there's a lot of misconceptions around, and it's something that also a tremendous number of people struggle with. So if you or someone you know or love, family member, friend, colleague, whoever struggles with back pain, listen to this episode, have them listen to this episode. I think it's going to help you a lot. Fair warning, the first three to five seconds of our audio was like explosive for some reason. So turn down your audio slightly now, just because we're going to go into the episode where him and I start talking. After that, you can turn it back up. I just don't want to blow your eardrums out. So with that being said, let's get into it. Dr. Aaron Horshig, we are live. Did I say that right? You said it right. Yeah. It's a tough last name to get. And I hate it too, because sometimes people will be like, all right, Jordan Siat. And I'll be like, you should have asked before we started recording. I'm an idiot. Luckily, I got that one right. Man, how are you? I'm doing well, man. How are you? I'm doing well, man. So before we dive in, before we uh, start talking about everything that we're going to discuss, um, tell everyone where they can follow you first and foremost, and then give a little bit of background about who you are and what you do. Yeah. So uh, if you search Squat University literally on any single social media platform from Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and even TikTok, you'll find uh, my platform. Basically, I'm a doctor of physical therapy with a background in strength and conditioning and Olympic weightlifting. Um, I competed in Olympic weightlifting for over 11 years. And then when I got into the world of physical therapy, I decided to create an outlet to where I could speak to other athletes and coaches on their level, not speak down to them from the ivory tower, which so many people love to do nowadays when they're in the medical field. And I wanted to help other people in a way in which I wish I had someone to help me when I was that 18 year old, 20 year old kid, just loving to lift big weights, but also finding injury now and then. And I want to create free content to help people move with better technique, decrease those common aches and pains and reach their true athletic potential. And that's what Squat University sort of started from back in 2015 and I've been doing it ever since. Man, that was like the best elevator pitch I've ever heard in my life. I love that. (laughs) Been practicing. (laughs) How did you get into Olympic weightlifting? So I uh, started off learning about the Olympic lifts, like the clean, specifically the clean, more like the power clean version back in high school, like eighth grade, got into the weight room. Uh, I grew up in St. Louis, so Eureka High School. Actually, we're very blessed. Most people don't have the access to amazing gyms like I did. I walked in, my football weight room had like eight Aleco barbells. Really? Yeah. I mean, which you're never going to find a high school weight room that has that quality of equipment. Um, my weightlifting coach was just sort of one of those people that was a nut when it came to lifting and was, you know, someone that really, really got me hooked onto it early on. So, you know, going through traditional sports, football, baseball, I was always in the weight room. I love being in the weight room. And while my athletic endeavors, you know, didn't really pan out how I wanted them to, when I got to college, there was the Olympic weightlifting team called the Iron Dogs. And this is back when Facebook first started, back in 2005. If you remember, when you got on Facebook, you would search on groups. Groups were like the big thing back then, so you could connect with other people. And I'm scrolling throughout my university, and I'm like looking at all the different things that are available, and it's like Iron Dog Olympic weightlifting team. And I'm like, well, I remember Olympic weightlifting from 
high school because I learned the clean. I never really saw snatches too much, so I wasn't exposed to the competition side of things, but I knew I loved lifting. And I went to the informational meeting and they're like, all right, so we lift like, you know, three to five days a week. And then, you know, on the weekends, every once in a while, we start competing. And I'm like, uh, that's amazing. Sign me up. I was like, it sounds exactly like my dream job. So uh, that was 2005. And I competed, gosh, I mean, like most Olympic weightlifters, a couple times a year for 11 plus years until finally I decided I had to make some life choices. And if I'm working <laughs> 40 hours a week as a physical therapist, seeing patients, and then spending another 40 hours a week on social media content and writing books and stuff like that, it's tough to also then ask your wife for time to then feed <laughs> on the weekends and pull two a days to do your Olympic lifting dreams as well. So uh, I took a step back from competing, but still train Olympic lifting because it's something I love to do and will always continue uh, doing. But um, yeah, just sort of changed how I how I do it now. Did you ever get any kickback from the physical therapy community for, you know, you're, you lift heavy weights. And I know a lot oh, of yeah. people in the physical therapy community are like, I've seen many physical therapists be like, deadlifts are bad. Squats are bad. Like, did you get any kickback for that? I really feel like I'm sort of in that like black sheep group within the physical therapy community. I mean, there are some physical therapists that are, you know, that came before me, Gray Cook, Kelly Starrett, guys like that, that I feel mm -hmm. like I'm only, you know, what is it, a dwarf standing on the giants who have come before me kind of thing. Um, but really the, the lifter to then become a physical therapist, it's not a very common thing. Correct. Yeah. You sort of see it the other way around is you get these people who are physical therapists who then enjoy lifting. So start talking about lifting, but they never were really like weightlifters or powerlifters first. Mm -hmm. So you definitely have this disconnect. I remember I was speaking at, uh, it was like maybe 2016 Kansas state, like sort of, uh, physical therapy convention. And I was talking on squat mechanics and I just had people raise their hand. I'm like, there's a room maybe of a hundred physical therapists. And I said, who here knows the That's difference the between a round. high bar, exactly <laughs> high bar, or low bar back squat. Who knows the difference? I swear out of the hundred people there, maybe eight people raised their hand. Really? Now in my head, I'm like, I'm in the wrong place, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I'm like, I love speaking to, to people who speak my language. That's why I'll use language when I'm making content. I'm not going to use the most technically advanced medical speak. I'll say things like your shin bone. You know, whereas like a regular right, physical right. therapist, like you mean your tibia, like, you know, but I think if you really want to connect with people and make a change and empower them, you have to speak to them in a way that they're going to be able to, you know, recognize and, and have it sit in with them. You have to be able to speak to them and with them, not at them in order to look impressive or exactly. to like try and like, and I think that's one of the things you do really well. And I don't say that lightly in terms of, I mean, listen, I, I used to make the mistake when I first got into making content, 2011, 2012, 2013, Eric Cressy was the guy who I like, I yep. wanted to be, I was like, I want to be Eric Cressy. And so I would use terminology like Eric did because Eric impressed me and I wanted to impress other people. And it wasn't yep. until I realized number one, I'm not Eric Cressy. I have to be myself. And number two, yep. the only way you can really impact people are if they can understand you. And, and so I think that's one of the things you do the best in terms of some of the best part about your content is you allow people to understand high level training, high level mechanics in a very easy to understand way. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, when I first started writing, I loved Gray Cook in the yeah. way Gray just explained things. 
But he uses language that if you talk to most athletes, they don't get any. I mean, right. he'll use things. He'll use dysfunctional a lot. Like if you talk to a 20 year old powerlifter and you're like, well, you're dysfunctional, triple flexion motion. I mean, sometimes if you get so caught up in trying to be the giant before you, you, you don't find your own voice. So it's like, yeah. we all want to like, I mean, Eric Cressy, he's the godfather of blogging. I mean, I've read so many of his things. So it's like, eventually you have to you read so much of their stuff but then you have to take time and this it's practice 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 to sort of find your own voice and then i think you really make a big leap because people can tell that it's authentic yeah yeah agreed 100 percent. Did, did you ever dabble into powerlifting or was it mainly all olympic lifting only what olympic weightlifting and probably the reason is is because i don't feel like i'm a very strong person I feel like naturally, you know what I'm saying? Like people say, are you naturally strong or naturally fast? I've always been that person. Like I'm pretty quick. I'm fast. I'm agile, but I was never just a strong kid. I mean, I graduated high school. I think I was probably about 165 pounds. So I know you can relate on being the smaller person. Side of things. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> how, tall are you? how tall are you? 5'11". Oh, you're tall, man. You're a big guy. Like, <laughs> well, well, when you're 165 pounds graduating high school at 5'11", you're not that big. Correct. But, yeah, you're lean. I mean, so at at my best ever, and this is probably when I was, gosh, what did I put up? I was probably like maybe later 20s. I did a 150 kilo clean and jerking competition, so 330 pounds. Yep. My best front squat was maybe only like 10 kilos more at the time. Wow. So like, okay. Yeah. So yeah. like. I just naturally have never been a very strong person, which is probably why I leaned always more towards the weightlifting side of things because mm -hmm. I love the the technical aspect of being fast. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I love powerlifters though. And I love the aspect uh, of competing in powerlifting. So I would say actually more of my clients working through Squat University probably more so come from powerlifting community than weightlifting. So I just realized as I asked you, I don't think I've ever differentiated on my podcast between powerlifting and Olympic lifting. Oh, yeah. Do, do you want to just quickly talk about like what is Olympic lifting? What is powerlifting? And so I think someone who doesn't know, they might hear you say, well, I'm an Olympic lifter because I'm not very strong. They might be like, what is that? <laughs> what That makes no sense. So what is, could yeah. you just talk about the differences? For sure. So there's two different sports. Weightlifting is called Olympic weightlifting. It is a sport that is a part of the Olympics. And then powerlifting. Now, Olympic weightlifting is technically the competition of two specific lifts, the snatch and the clean and jerks. The snatch is arms are wide and then is one movement to overhead, often caught into a deep squat position. The clean and jerk is composed of two parts of the lift. You clean to your shoulders and then you have to jerk it over to your head in one smooth motion. So you're judged on those two lifts only. You get three lifts in competition so you can fly all the way across the world for six lifts have a great day <laughs> or horrible day power lifting is the three combination lifts of the bench squat and deadlift same thing you get three attempts at each in competition now power lifters even though it is power lifting is technically not a very powerful sport that's obviously the the joke that everyone in the game understands it's because it's big weight moved somewhat slow because it's on a very high high weight scale you can't move yeah. very fast so there's not a lot of power being sometimes heard. very slow <laughs> sometimes very slow exactly especially those like thousand pound benches oh my god so um yeah power lifters are often the uh if you had to generalize it are often the guys that are just extremely extremely strong people who aren't necessarily the most fast uh powerful agile athletes obviously this is a vast generalization yes yes 
weightlifters because it is a very, it's a speed dominant sport. So you can't move slow. It is usually lifts that are performed at a lower uh, intensity than a very high intensity. So example, if someone can one rep max back squat 300 pounds, their clean and jerk is probably in that like 250 to upper 200 range. So it's usually a, not as heavy lift, but it's done very fast and very powerful. So yeah. two different sports. Um, but obviously weightlifters still do things like power lifters as far as the different lifts. It's just the com- competition lifts are a little bit different. One of the, the ways that I've always found to break down the difference between Olympic lifting and powerlifting is Olympic lifting is far more technical, right? Olympic lifting is, it's a much more technique based sport as opposed to powerlifting. And the, the way that I've been able to, to express this to people, cause you know, powerlifters, Olympic lifters, they're cult like, right? They, they each think they're the best. And when I was in the powerlifting world, all the powerlifters, they would get mad at me when I would say, no, Olympic lifting is way more technical. They'd be like, what are you talking about? No, it's not. I'd be like, it's simple. It's very simple. If you can grind through a lift, if you can grind through a squat, through a deadlift, through a bench press, it's not technical. Mm-hmm. It's not as technical as the, 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 clean, the clean and jerk and the snatch. Yeah. But you, can't, you can't grind through a snatch. It's no. like you either get it or you don't. Like there's no grinding at all. Mm-hmm. So I think when, when it comes down to sort of explaining the, the, some of the, the deeper differences of the two sports, powerlifting is the sport of getting really, really strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like getting really strong in squat, bench, deadlift. Olympic lifting is the sport. Yes, you need to have a strong squat. You need to have, uh, like not the, actually, I think the even greater aspect of this is you need to have a wider array of strength too. It can't just be the back yeah. squat, front squat, overhead squat, all of that stuff. So the Olympic lifting, I think, is much more technically difficult as opposed to powerlifting. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I've seen many, many strong athletes struggle with Olympic weightlifting. Just mm-hmm. because it's it's very much so a skill. I mean, the only thing I can compare it to in my own experience is like when you hit that one rep max snatch and it's just like everything's moving so well, it's like hitting a line drive in baseball. And just mm-hmm. for that brief second, everything connects and just moves smoothly. And think about how many times a baseball player does that same exact cut time after time after time. An Olympic weightlifter, like you're literally trying to perfect one movement down to the, you know, centimeter. If you're off by a little bit, the whole movement's off, you know? So it's, yeah. Let me ask you this. What do you think the role is, if any, for Olympic lifting in training everyday people? Some, you know, someone who's, we'll call it 40 years old, has a couple kids. They've never Olympic weightlifted before. Maybe they've got some back pain, some like joint aches and pains. They want to lose weight, get stronger. What, and, and, I have no idea what you're going to say on this. I'm very yeah. interested in your, like, what do you think the role of role of Olympic weightlifting is in that person's program? I think it depends on the person and their prior injury history. If they're not trying to be an athlete, <clears throat> I do see a lot of promise in performing explosive type movements mm-hmm. because what it, it does is it's going to require a higher rate of force development. So you're yep. using your body to create power and speed, which is, you know, if you're trying to pick a box off the ground and then put it onto a high shelf, like it's a violent hip motion to be able to drive things up high. Like there's more movements in life that are performed quickly than I think that are performed very slowly. Mm-hmm. So I think like you need to have that slow controlled strength and in, in uh, capacity, but I think having the ability to move fast in control 
that quick movement, I think is just as vitally important. When you see older populations like 50, 60, 70, a lot of times they haven't lost their strength as much as they have their power. Mm. They haven't, they've lost their speed. And I think they're, you know, having that ability throughout the rest of your life is vitally important to maintaining the body that you want to have in the, the capabilities that you want. Now, does everyone need to perform a barbell snatch? I would say no. I think maybe, you know, a power clean, I think is very, very helpful. Um, you know, but there's a lot of different technical aspects to that that are difficult to learn unless you have a good coach. So that's a difficult thing to just sort of pick it up on your own. Um, I think you can get a lot of benefit also if it's not from like the Olympic lifts from things that are similar in nature, like a kettlebell swing or, you know, a kettlebell snatch. I mean, things like that. I think there's less room for error and it's easier to pick up and just as good of for just general population. If you're a 40 year old soccer mom, I love kettlebell swings and I would love a kettlebell snatch. I think both of those things are things that you can learn. Um, very quickly, you can pick them up and they can have a lot of uh, ROI for your your daily life. I think that's by far the best way to put it. I, I've come across a lot of coaches who, they're adamant, sort of like when I was younger. When I was younger, I was adamant basically that everybody needed to power lift. Mm-hmm. Like that's just, I was, I was a power lifter and I was like, I, I wasn't good at differentiating my goals from my client's goals. Yeah. And as I've grown as a coach, I've learned like, listen, like my goals are not my client's goals and I need to make sure that what they're doing is good for them, not what's good for me. And mm-hmm. so I've seen a lot of coaches who are like all about Olympic lifting or powerlifting and they'll get someone in there and then get them start barbell snatching on day one. I'm like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Are you out of your, like they have 30 minutes, three times a week to work out and you're going to spend the first however long teaching them how to snatch. Mm-hmm. But I, for me, not the greatest ROI. What they also don't realize is you can get the same benefits from exercises that require far less technique, far less rate of injury, like a kettlebell swing and get the same, if not more benefit. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing when we talk about, uh, athletes who are not barbell athletes, talk about a football player, talk about a basketball player. Like is learning a snatch helpful for a basketball player? Sure. It would be a great exercise because it's full body explosion to overhead. You're throwing your hands over your head all the time in basketball, but a snatch is so technically demanding that it will take much longer to start from square one to get to square five. In, in that time, you're not using a lot of load. So I could be giving that person just a good, if not a better workout and training regimen that's going to bleed over into the things that they need to be able to do on the court with a kettlebell snatch. And maybe, you know, we can load that even more. Um, so I, I don't, as much as I love the Olympic lifts, I'm not married to the idea that everyone needs them. Again, every single exercise is a tool in our toolbox. And Mm. our goal as a coach is to pull out that right tool to give that person what they need to be able to meet their end goal. And everyone's goals are a little bit different. But at the end of the day, we're trying to become a stronger, more healthier, functional version of ourselves so that we can live life how we want to for the rest of our days. I love that. I love that. It's... uh... One thing that came to mind is something Louis Louis Simmons said to me years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, to the effect of a lot of coaches, they get married to a certain lift or a certain set of lifts, right? So we could call it the Olympic lifts. And I know a lot of coaches look at the Olympic lifts, they call them the speed lifts. Mm-hmm. One of the differentiations that Louis made that I really loved is it's not in, a lift isn't inherently fast or explosive. It's how you perform the lift, oh. right? So, I mean, if you take someone who isn't very coordinated or doesn't have their technique down and you tell them to do a clean or a snatch, whatever it is, it's not going to be explosive. 
it's yeah. it's going to be they're not going to be putting as much force into the ground maybe unless what if you have them do an explosive goblet squat yeah right reduce the weight <clears throat> but now you get the same benefits of getting that explosive power getting that type of work in without the outrageous technique demands without putting their their joints at risk so i think that's an important thing for coaches and for everyday people to to take into consideration just because uh, a well executed movement requires a lot of speed and power doesn't mean that you're going to be doing it in a way that actually creates that adaptation. Yeah, that's a, a very good point. I know uh, some great coaches in the field of strength and conditioning, like Brian Mann, who I got the chance to, to work under a little bit when I was an intern at the University of Missouri. And his big thing was like, what about uh, like a, a medicine ball throw or toss? Mm. Like that's an explosive movement. Yeah. You can tell a kid, hey, throw this thing 50 feet in the air and he's going to triple extend and throw that thing and thrust his hips forward. Like that's power. But you tell that same kid who's never picked up a barbell much in his life, all right, today we're going to learn how to snatch. Like, just not going <laughs> to get there. So if I have 30 minutes with a kid and my goal at the end of the day is to make him a better football player, I'm not going to teach him how to snatch. I'm going to teach him how to create power and yeah. get that time and get that ROI and get out of it. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is injury. Mm. And it's like back injuries, knee injuries. It's one of the things you cover incredibly well on your page. And again, um, I'm going to, I'll put your information in the, in the show notes, squat university across platforms. He has amazing information. Um, what would you say is the number one most common injury that you see among not just athletes, but everybody like, and, and if I'm sure there are many, but what would you say is among the most common? I would say back pain is the most common. And this is something that's just in America in general. About 80% of the population, according to research, will have back pain at some type in their life. And a number of those people will have a recurring episode of back pain. And I think it's because a lot of times we fail to recognize when injury is there or when the signs of injury. And then when we do have an injury set in, we go about fixing it completely the wrong way. And oftentimes, I mean, that's just a, a slap in the face as far as like the, the medical system in our country is completely flawed in the way that we address injury. Most people, when they have back pain, they go to a doctor, a general practitioner most of the time, who will tell them, oh, well, what were you doing? You were lifting. Oh, well, you need to stop lifting. Take this pain medication, take a couple <laughs> weeks off, put some heat on it, put some ice on it, and then get back into it. Maybe, but you probably shouldn't be lifting that much. You know, or they maybe they take an MRI. Well, then again, we're probably spending how much money on an MRI that's not needed. If you were to just go to a physical therapist, maybe that understands how to screen the body properly, you know, and then you get the MRI results back. <clears throat> if anyone's over the age of 30, that MRI is very likely going to show a disc bulge that may or may not even be a part of the problem. Because research shows right now that if you're over the age of 30, there is a 30% chance that likely there is an abnormality in your spine. That have picked up on MRI, a disc bulge, degenerative disc disease, something that looks off. And it's just not a bad thing necessarily. It's like wrinkles to the skin. At 30 years old, your spine is not going to look the exact same as you did when you were eight. But that's okay. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean your spine is damaged and forever just broken. It just means that there's something that's looking a little different than pristine textbook nature. And this, this is what happens as we age and we go through life and we lift things and we move our bodies. But the problem is that when we always look at things on an MRI and say that, oh, this disc bulge is 100% the problem and the reason why you have pain, and we haven't even done any tests. I mean, how many people go to a doctor and they never even touch the patient? They just yeah. look at a scan. That is not a good evaluation. 
If you go to a doctor and they don't even touch you and they just look at a scan, you're at the wrong doctor. You need to see someone else that's going to actually give you a proper evaluation. Back pain, when we evaluate it, we don't look at the specifics of the anatomy necessarily. We diagnose someone based on their movement triggers. So we look at specific loads, postures, and movements that trigger pain. And then based on that, it empowers us to understand what creates our pain, what can take our pain away, and how we can formulate an actual treatment plan to get you back out of pain, build back capacity, and get you back to doing all the things that you want to do in life. Man. Okay. Well, this is completely not my area of expertise at all. And I, and considering so many people struggle with it, I've got to, I've got yeah. to dive deeper. Number Let's one, selfishly, just because I, I don't know any of this and I'd love to learn more. And I think a lot of people would benefit from this. Yeah. Talk to me about, let's say someone listening has back pain. Yeah. What do they, what do they do? Where do they begin? Yeah. So I have created so much free content on this because that's, that's my goal. I've dealt with back pain. I've literally been sitting down, tying my shoes, getting ready to work out and I bend forward and all of a sudden I just feel a pop in my low back. And I'm like, I'm on the ground for like a, a day. It just hurts so bad I can't even stand up. So the idea during that time, first and foremost, is to know what positions can I get into that can decrease pain? What feels good? What feels bad? For example, a number of people that develop back pain are flexion intolerant, meaning if you sit with a rounded back posture and pull your chest forward to try to touch your toes, that hurts. But if I stand up and I go for a walk, I can feel a little bit better. That means that flexion, the movement of bending your back is a trigger for your pain. So what does that mean? Well, short term, let's change things up. If you go bend over to get laundry out of your dryer, how about kneel? If you okay. go to bend over to pick up your baby, how about you kneel? Or, or, or things like that, hinge at your hips a little bit better instead of bending at your back. Things like that in the short term will help desensitize your back to pain and help wind down the symptoms that you feel. If you're sitting, how about you have a, uh, a lumbar roll underneath your low back? Maybe just roll up a, a jacket and put it underneath your low back to help keep it from flexing, to help keep mm. it from slouching forward. Things like that, small things throughout the day can be very helpful. Anyone listening that has back pain, go on squatuniversity.com, click on the blog article, blog article tab at the top, and just scroll down. And there's a blog that says how to screen your low back pain. And there's mm. a number of different tests and measures that basically you can do on your own. Some of them require a friend to move your hip around. And you're looking for what are the triggers for pain. And at the end, you can figure out, well, what is my movement direction of pain that leads to triggers? And this allows you to figure out what causes pain. You, it empowers you because too many times we go to the doctor, they're like, oh, well, this hurts, this hurts. I think I, you know, bulging disc, your MRI, your x-ray showed this. Just take this pain medication. You have no idea what to do. You're, you're told your back is broken. You don't, they don't tell you the next steps. Maybe you go to a chiropractor. And this is not a, a knock on chiropractors, but many chiropractors, they take you in and then you feel the pop, 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 right? You, they do a lot of manipulations and then you feel better in the short term, but you don't know how your back pain started. You don't know what to mm. do next. So what happens if in a week your back continues to hurt? So the idea a lot of times is we're told to stretch our back away, which is not a good idea also. When you stretch your back, you, some people will get a, uh, a small short-term relief in pain. But it's not because you're actually fixing the problem. You're actually activating small stretch receptors deep within the muscles that temporarily change your body's perception of pain. So like if you lay on your back and pull your knees towards your chest, 
you'll actually feel a light stretch in your low back. Yep. So you may get like a temporary, like five to 10 minute or 30 minute decrease in pain, but long-term that pain can sometimes just continue and continue. So the way in which I like to approach fixing back pain is first and foremost, we have to do different tests and measures to figure out how is someone triggering with their pain? Is it maybe extension? When I, every time I stand up, I can only stand up for so long and then I have to sit down, mm. but I feel better sitting down. Okay. That's an extension intolerance or is it a flexion intolerance? We have to look at hip mobility because a lot of people that have back pain have problems and differences side to side in hip mobility. And what that does is the next time you go to squat or even bend over to pick up a box because the hips are not moving symmetrically, you have uneven forces placed on the spine. So until you actually fix the hip side to side difference in mobility, you're never truly going to fix the problem at the spine. So Got we it. work on that. And then we work on stabilizing the spine. So we do different exercises like the McGill big three, which is a combination of three core stability exercises that place very low load on the spine. Uh, for anyone listening, if you just Google McGill Big Three Squat University, you'll find that video, and it just takes you through very simple core exercises that you can do every single day to stabilize the spine. And then through proper movement that's going to not push you into your trigger, and then doing different things like building stability, we slowly can get you out of pain, and then eventually we start progressing back into doing different things like, like maybe a little bit of lifting or exercise to help you get back to 100%. One of the things I really like about what you outlined is a, a consistent focus on not being content with short-term pain reduction. Yeah. It's not just about stretching the pain away for 30 minutes. I get asked that question all the time. What stretches do you have for my back pain? I get that in the DMs every day. And I'm always like, go follow Squat University, go to Squat <laughs> University all the time. But yeah. I get and same thing with chiropractors and, and again, not a knock on chiropractors. Like yeah. I have a lot of friends and colleagues who are chiropractors, but I, I see a consistent issue. My mom, she, she goes to a chiropractor. She's done it for years, like ever since I was a kid. And the one thing I've said, I was like, mom, you've had like this neck pain, this back pain for years, but you just keep going back every two weeks. You keep going to the chiropractor, but like, you're not actually fixing the pain. Like it, the goal exactly. should be to have it short term fixed. The goal should be, what can I do now? And over the course of the next month, two months, three months to eliminate or at least diminish the pain forever. It's not a short term thing. Yeah. I mean, my, I always tell my patients, like once we're done with getting you out of pain, I don't want to see you again in my office. Mm. You know, yep. I, I want you to understand how to take control of this so that if in five years it comes back, you don't have to come back to me. You understand how to take the first steps to get yourself back out of pain again. You know, we're just consumed in this world today, especially in our social media driven world for these quick changes, these quick results. You know, we see people that they want to go viral all the time. They want the big changes. They want it. They're in pain. I want to get it out. You see commercials every single day. I'll leave it. You know, you see different uh, Tylenol commercials. All that stuff is for quick changes. We don't want to take it upon ourselves to learn why we got injured in the first place and to get out of pain. You know, I mean, we, the goal is to educate people so that they understand why their pain started in the first place, how to get out of pain and then how back, how to build that body of resiliency and high capacity so that they don't have injuries like this in the future. I love that. Give me one second. I need to plug my laptop in and I don't edit my audio. So everyone's going to hear me <laughs> saying this. One no worries.
All right, that was the first time I've ever had to do that. I completely forgot to plug my laptop <laughs> in. I just get the notification as you're talking. Um, okay, you know what I think is actually, um, I want to get into more specifics in regard to what people can do in terms of like certain like, I know they can go look up the McGill 3, by the way, that's the M-C-G-I-L-L, -L, it's McGill, M-C-G-I-L-L, -L, and you can Google search that with Squat University. Um, one of the things you were talking about is getting an MRI mm -hmm. and how people will, they get an MRI, the doctor will say, oh, look, you have a bulging disc, this is the issue. Mm -hmm. I I could imagine some people being like, well, how is that not the issue, right? Mm -hmm. Some people are like, well, I have a bulging disc, like, and and I could, I love the example you're saying, it's like a wrinkle in your skin, it happens over time, mm -hmm. but I I know that some people don't have, they could have, their spine could look picture perfect, but they have serious back pain. Yes. And, and like looking at the spine, like you'd say, well, the spine looks fine. I don't know why you have back pain. Whereas other people have multiple bulging discs and they have no back pain. They're totally mm -hmm. fine. So can you talk about that? Like why is an MRI, why is just getting a picture of your spine not enough to diagnose why you have the pain? The, the first thing is, is like you just said, is that if we took 100 individuals who are 30 years old and had an MRI of every one of their backs, now let's say they're all pain-free at this time, 30% of them at 30 years old would show some abnormality within their spine. And as you age, every decade, that uh, percentage rises like 10%. So at 50 years old, there's probably 50% chance that there's something that doesn't look great on an MRI, yet you have no pain. So just because someone has pain and has an MRI that confirms a disc bulge doesn't necessarily mean that that is 100% the true source of anatomical pain. And this is called a pathoanatomical diagnosis. That's the way most of the medical community uh, diagnose pain is they look for abnormalities that they can see and they diagnose it based on this specific tissue within the body that they believe to be the problem in the source of pain. Now, the problem with that is that even if we could find with 100% certainty the tissue that is at fault, and when I say tissue, I mean like any time, like a disc is a tissue, a, a skin, bone, it's considered a biological tissue. The problem with that is because it doesn't tell you what to do next. Mm. Because here's the deal, just because someone has a disc bulge doesn't necessarily mean that they will automatically fall within a specific treatment to get them better. Because you could have a disc bulge in a number of different ways, or it could trigger your pain in a number of different ways. So that's where the movement diagnosis that I'm so big on telling people about, and this is the way in which a lot of physical therapists work, is that we work to, to teach people to look at movement, not their specific anatomy. Now, we have a good idea of the anatomy, so don't get me wrong. I, with the type of testing that I do, you can uh, piece together like different pieces to a puzzle. You can figure out a lot of times what specific tissue may be at fault, but it doesn't need to be known with 100% certainty to make big changes in the short term. Because, that's interesting. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting because I don't think a lot of people talk about that. Mm -hmm. So let, let's say, for example, again, um, what I like to do is a chair compression test. And this is, again, something that I learned from Dr. Stuart McGill, who's one of the foremost authorities in the entire world on back, uh, you know, back pain and back mechanisms of injury. And you're sitting in your chair. If anyone listening to this is sitting at home in a chair, sit with good posture. And you're going to take your hands and put I'm them in this right chair. I'm doing this with and you you're right. going to pull straight up as hard as you can. So try to compress your spine straight down. And you're going to see, is there any pain? Yes or no? For most people, they'll say, yeah, it feels pretty fine. Now round your back like crazy and then pull up. So for some people, 
What that's doing is creating flexion posture, so your back is rounding, and then we're creating compression. Now, that is, for some people, what would exacerbate a disc bulge if that was their injury. Mm. Um, because flexion with load, so force down, down through the spine, actually creates like a pressure gradient that makes a disc bulge worse. And this is a, a number of types of disc bulges. There's a couple of different ways in which a disc can herniate. Now, it doesn't mean for, with 100% certainty that's a disc bulge because there's other different anatomical tissues that could become injured and painful in that way. Like uh, you could have a vertebral, a small vertebral fracture, an end plate fracture. Um, so there's not to say that this is 100% a disc bulge. But what we do know is that flexion, posture with load leads to pain. So we say this person has a flexion intolerance diagnosis. So then Got the person it. goes, well, what does that mean? Well, that <laughs> means throughout your day, don't put yourself in flexed or rounded spine postures. When you're sitting, try to sit up tall. When you're bending forward to get uh, dishes out of the dishwasher, kneel down or try to keep your spine straight. Try to hinge at your hips and don't let your spine round. You know, maybe push your hands into your, into your thigh to keep your spine from rounding. When you're brushing your teeth and spitting your toothpaste out, don't round your back. Sort of lean over the counter and things like that. First off, it empowers the person because they go, aha, I know what makes my, my pain worse. If I stand up and I go for a 20-minute walk, I feel great. But if I sit down for 20 minutes and I know I'm in a slouched posture, that makes my pain worse. So they're empowered to take control of their symptoms from day one. So and that's, that's the big thing is that a movement diagnosis helps the patient know or the person know I can change my pain. I don't need to have to have all this crazy surgery. I'll do all these fancy different things. I can just change the way I'm moving in the short term throughout my day. Now, this is not to say that rounding your spine is never going to be possible again. I was just about to ask that. Okay, yeah, good. Because here's the deal. It just means that right now that's a trigger for pain. Your spine is designed to move. It is designed to move forward, backwards, twist, do any of the crazy TikTok dances that come out. <laughs> it's designed to move. But when it's injured, we want to make sure that it's not moving into the position that makes it worse. But then slowly over time, as you wind down your pain symptoms and you instill good core stability with exercises like the McGill Big Three, and then you build back capacity with different rehab exercises. And these are things I've shared all across social media. You can get to the point where if you bend forward to pick up something off the ground and you round your spine, it's not going to hurt because you have the capacity to handle that small amount of load. Now, you do that time and time again, over and over and over again, well, maybe you might be picking that scab eventually to where it turns into a wound again. Yeah. But in the short term, you have the capacity to handle it. So I know this is, this is a general question and it won't apply to everybody, but just like generally speaking, what are one or two mobility exercises that people might be able to do for their hips or something that could help with their back pain? And what a couple of, of stability exercises that people could do? So I'm a big fan of the assisted hip airplane. Um, and basically what you're going to do is you, you get into like a single leg RDL position and okay. you're grabbing, you can grab a countertop, you can grab uh, the edge of your couch and basically you swivel your hips open and swivel your hips down. Now for people who are like trying to get a visual of this, let me see actually right now, I'm going to pull it up. Uh, cause there's a specific video that I made 
on YouTube that I can direct people to. It's on your YouTube channel? It's on my YouTube channel, on Squaw University. Let me find it real quick. Quick tips for low back tweaks, instant relief. Now, I say instant relief because I'm going to show you ways in which you can modify your pain in the short term by moving differently. I'm not here to sell you uh, a pop on your back, a, a fancy wrap around your spine. I'm not here to sell you that type of instant relief. I'm here to empower you to take control of your pain instantly. And in that, I believe I show uh, the assistant hip airplane as a way to to improve hip mobility. Okay. Um, yeah. So that, that's one of my big ones that I would talk, uh, that I would give people early on that most of the time can be very, very helpful for hip mobility. Um, second thing I know that like we talked about the McGill big three can often yep. be done uh, completely pain-free with someone. And when the thing with the McGill big three, why it's so great is because when people get done doing it, they stand up and they feel like they've got a sheet of armor across their core. They feel stronger. So That's all awesome. of a sudden they were, you know, earlier they were not feeling very strong. They felt weak. Um, back pain changes your ability to feel stable. Uh, pain instantly decreases your positional awareness. So your ability to even know if you're in a good postured position. So by doing things like the McGilbig 3, we instill stability, almost like guy wires that run off a radio tower to sort of hold it in place so that the next time there's a big storm that blows through, it stays in a great position. Okay. I love that. What about some stabilization exercises or some strength exercises? Like, for example, do you think deadlifts are an okay idea for someone who's currently um, exhibiting back pain? I think it depends on the person and how it's performed. Um, we always want to understand that pain is a, is a sensation that we need to be aware of, almost like your check engine light that pops on in your car. I don't just want to try to cover it up with a piece of tape and keep on driving. Understand <laughs> it's there for a reason. So if you're deadlifting and you have pain, think, well, why is the pain there? And likely, if you can get into that bottom position to pick up the bar and just sitting there, you're like, oh, my back feels pretty good. Okay. Let's stabilize. Let's take a big breath into your stomach. Let's brace as hard as you can. Drive those feet into the ground. Get the glutes to turn on and then deadlift. Did that change your pain? Okay, well, maybe it's just the stability aspect. Some people, they may need to modify the deadlift to where maybe they're doing uh, a kettlebell deadlift and they're starting from a box. So they're basically doing a partial. You know, mm -hmm. they're not doing the full movement. And sometimes for that person, that can be helpful. So it's all about sort of finding what that person needs at that time and modifying the lift to where we're doing it pain-free and getting a lot of benefit, but not feeling it in our backs. So here's the big thing that a lot of people may not get. If you're feeling a back pump after doing a deadlift, you're not deadlifting correctly. You're mm -hmm. not optimally stabilizing your spine and using your hips to create that force. So that's a big thing. I, I put that post up on Instagram uh, a couple, like a couple months ago, and a lot of people were like, "That's ridiculous." The back muscles. I bet you are got people hard. mad with that. <laughs> yeah. And then I had Chris Duffin, who's a professional powerlifter and a great mind in the in the strength world today, and he's like, "Nope, this is true." He's like, "Back when I was deadlifting a thousand for three reps, I'll say that again for people: a thousand pounds for three <laughs> reps." He was like, "When I was leading up to that training." I was getting a lot of back pumps. He's like, when that happens, like your back is just so tired the next day, you can't handle more load. He's mm -hmm. like, but then I learned how to stabilize and breathe and brace and create this tension in my hips. And he goes, eventually those back pumps went away. And it wasn't pain. It was just like the sensation of like, you just got done doing a hundred curls. Your biceps just have this huge pump going through them. Mm -hmm. That's normal. Well, your low back should not experience that when doing a deadlift or when doing a squat. And it's not to get people scared that they're doing something wrong. It's just not as optimal. It could be better. 
And when you move with just a little bit better technique, you're going to be able to recover quicker and handle more volume throughout your week, which means you can reach your goals, whatever your goals are. If it's to get stronger, to have better aesthetics, to get more trim, you want to be able to you know, train in a more optimal environment. And that's what that allows you to do. Let me ask you this. Do you think it's bad to get a back pump doing any exercises? Like, do you think it's okay to get a lower back pump for like, let's say for example, you're doing good mornings mm-hmm. and obviously like, would you, would you expect a back pump doing good mornings? And would you say I, that's okay? I would not expect a pump. I, I would expect those muscles that surround the core to be a little tired. Okay. But yeah. I, I, I don't think you should optimally feel that in your low back. I, I think I think if, if if done correctly, I feel like the the glutes, the hamstrings. I mean, because it's a very very hip dominant movement. But I don't think we want to feel the low back fatigued in a specific area. You know what I'm okay. saying? I feel like like full body. Yeah, it should be tough. It should be tired. But you should get done, and you shouldn't feel like that. Wow, my low back is just on fire with a lot of blood flowing to it. Do you think training the erectors is good in any capacity in terms of like feeling a pump through your through your back? I think if you're training the body correctly with big movements, the erectors are going to be worked like crazy and you don't need that big pump to get work done. Okay. You, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I don't think uh, you need to have the pump in order to make them uh, more robust or stronger. Got it. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah that makes yeah. sense. Um, what do you think about core training? This is a really common question. I get. I'm sure you get it all the time in terms of some people say you should be doing direct, direct ab work. And then there are other people say you never need to do direct ab work because the big lifts do that, do enough. What do you think about that? I, I think it always is a, it depends in what are the end goals of the person. So I work with a lot of athletes and their goal is to perform on the field or on the platform in weightlifting, powerlifting, CrossFit. In that case, I say core work is a derivative of your warmups, whether that's like the McGill Big Three that I like to use as a warmup, as an assistant exercise with things like suitcase carries, farmer's walks, sled pushes. But basically, any movement that you do is core. A front squat, that's core work because what are you doing? You're maintaining stability through your spine, you're maintaining posture. Your core muscles in that instance, they're not there to create movement of the spine, they're there to limit. Uh, excessive movement and help you control the posture that you want to maintain, which like when you're deadlifting, you know, if you start your deadlift and your back just starts to round like crazy, that cat back that we always see on Instagram, you know, social media, like the lift is done, your power is gone. So your goal at that time is to maintain that flat posture, lock it in place and then move about the hips. So your core work should basically be a derivative of something that's going to help you maintain that posture when you're lifting. Now, Here's the, it depends. Let's say your goal is to be a fitness, uh, as far as the aesthetics go, as yep. far as like uh, bodybuilding, any type of the, the modeling, things like that. In that instance, your goal is not necessarily better movement, but better form. And in that case, your goal is to basically chisel your body out of stone to look a certain way. And in that instance, different exercises that move the spine to create a specific adaptation at a particular muscle is the end goal. So for that instance, I can see things like crunches or side bends and things like that, that move the spine. They have a very direct purpose. But for Mm -hmm. most people, I believe that unless your goal is bodybuilding, 
I believe that most people should be performing core movements that stabilize the spine and keep it from moving so that you can move better. And the thing with that, that people got to have to understand is that obviously a lot of people that are listening to this podcast, your, your goal is fitness. You want to be, you know, you want to look good. You want to, you know, be strong. Uh, you may not be a, a, a world-class power lifter, but at the end of the day, you want to look good too, right? You want to have that six pack chiseled and things like that. A lot of the big weight lifters and power lifters that look good when they take their shirt off, they've got just chiseled muscles. They're not doing sit-ups hours on that. They're not doing side bends and Russian twists. They're stabilizing their body with different isometric exercises like suitcase carries and things like that, but they're lifting with good technique and their diet is on point. Mm -hmm. So the aesthetics that come with that is an after effect, as a side effect of proper lifting with good technique and good diet. So a lot of times people are sold and because we see it on all these horrible infomercials every single day, oh, you want to get your lower abs, do this. You want to get your <laughs> upper abs, do this crunch in this way or use this belly trimmer. No, it's crap. You know, if you want to do those movements, they're not a bad thing, but understand that you have to have a lot of that nutrition to go with it to expose the muscle that's down there. But a lot of times just moving well and lifting weights with great technique can be very helpful as well. So uh, again, it all comes down to it depends. And I don't think it can be a black and white photo kind of thing. There's very much so a reason some people are doing the crunches, but understand doing 500 crunches a day isn't the necessarily best route to get you that six pack. I mean, I used to do that before bed when I was in high school, man, 100 crunches <laughs> before you go to bed. You know, that's what we all did. What about like um, planks, pull-off presses, core work that's Love. not traditional. Okay, you, so you like that type of core work over the flexion-based, movement-based core work. Exactly, because what, what you just described are isometrics. So where mm. the muscle's contracting, but the spine's not moving. So uh, a plank, great exercise. You're teaching your body how to stabilize. Um, a pull-off press where you're bracing and then punching out in front. Great exercise because it's teaching how to use your spine to resist motion. So all that terms, you know, basically runs into uh, movement-based core exercises, not necessarily, um, you know, exercises that are going to change the position of the spine, like um, a GHD sit-up, uh, a crunch, a Russian twist, things like that. Got it. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. What do you think about, quote-unquote, activation exercises. I know that there's a lot of controversy. Some people say, like, you don't need these activation exercises. They don't do anything, and other people are, are big fans of them. Uh, no. What's your stance uh, of activation exercises? <laughs> do you think they're worth it? They're not worth it? If you do, like, where would you put them? Talk to me about that. Yeah, I, I think, it again, it depends on the person and their needs. Uh, for example, um, there's uh, a common trend that you see sometimes in people who are dealing with back pain or hip pain where maybe one of their glutes – isn't firing as well as the other side. So here's a simple test I show people. You do a single leg bridge on each side. Right side single leg bridge, left side single leg bridge. And you hold it for 10 seconds and you see what muscles are working well. Do you feel your glutes working well on both sides? Because sometimes people, let's say they have left hip pain or left side lower back pain. They'll do the right side single leg bridge and they feel their glute, maybe their hamstring a little bit, but then they do their left side and they're feeling their quad working really hard. They're feeling mm -hmm. a little unstable. Mm. Well, in that instance, your left glute is not firing neurologically as well as the other side. It's not just completely off because if it was off, you just, you wouldn't be able to get your hips up. It's just right, not, right. it's not turning on to the greatest degree as the other side. So in that instance, before working out, I may have someone do a set of bridges in their warm up, 
for a 10 second hold with a band around their knees and cueing them just squeeze your glutes pinch your you know butt cheeks together like you got a quarter pinch between your butt cheeks try to get those muscles to turn on and then afterwards then they're like wow my glutes are on fire i'm gonna do some squats wow i feel like i'm moving a little bit better so in that instance um i think when we're talking about primers the idea is can we get the body to move optimally during the next exercise for some people uh it means doing this exercise or that exercise but it's at the end of the day it's how can we allow ourselves to neurologically move as optimally as possible one one of the things i've i enjoy about activation exercises primers whatever you want to call it is if you have someone who who's tr has trouble feeling their glute during a, a glute bridge how in the hell do you expect them to feel it when they load it and try and do a back squat like yeah. there, there's no, if you can't feel it with a body weight exercise, like non weight bearing, just like easy lying on your back, there's no way you're going to be able to feel it when you're doing it loaded. That's just, you're going to go to like the, the easiest route. Right. And yeah. usually it's the route they're using the wrong muscles in the wrong way. Uh, and you're going to over that's, that's when injury happens. So one of yeah. the reasons I like doing a, an activation exercise prior to a heavy exercise is because you can focus on feeling that muscle work and oftentimes just getting that motor unit going at the very beginning is enough to then be able to feel it when you load it heavier so that you're, you're a little bit safer and you use the right muscles while you're doing the exercise. hundred percent agree. So listen, man, I, uh, I've kept you for almost an hour. First and <laughs> foremost, thank you for, for taking the time to do this. You're I really welcome. You're it. welcome. Um, I know you recently put out a book. Do you want to just yes. briefly talk about that? Yeah, so uh, my new book is called Rebuilding Milo. It drops uh, January 19th. Did you get your copy in the mail? I did not yet, no. Oh, man, it should be coming soon then. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let me know. Um, yeah, so uh, Rebuilding Milo comes out, um, and basically the idea behind it is that it is um, the book for every single person who walks in the weight room that wants to be able to get out of these common aches and pains we get. If you love being in the weight room and lifting, no matter if you're a power lifter, weight lifter, or if you're just a fitness enthusiast, you love working out and training. Well, let's say you had back pain like we talked about today. Turn to chapter one, which is all about back pain. You learn how back pain starts. You try these tests. It puts together, based on the test, an individualized plan for you to get out of pain and back to 100%. And it allows you to take those first steps without having to go to someone who may or may not have your best interest or mind or may or may not put you on the right path to get you out of pain. So it allows basically any single person who loves to be in the gym to take the first steps to get out of pain with the small aches and pains that just happen throughout life when we're lifting heavy weight. So it drops January 19th. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's my goal to really help people the way in which I wish I had some help back when I was a, a younger athlete. Where, where can they get it? Is it on pre-order? So, yeah, it's on pre-order right now on amazon.com all over the world on Amazon. Uh, if you don't like Amazon, which some people have pointed out to me, <laughs> uh, barnesandnoble.com, indiebound.org, um, bookdepository.com, basically, uh, any book site, even uh, local retailers, you should be able to go to it or even your library and put your name in for it. I love that. Man, thank you so much. This has been great to have you on. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, all right? Sounds good, man.